Amen. It's good to see you, church, this morning, and um, I hope that you all are hungry this morning and eager to read and study and and uh, take in, digest God's word with us. So uh, let me take a moment and just pray and ask for God's help and His anointing and His blessing on this time, so it's not wasted, so that it's used well and wisely for our good. Let's pray. Father, we again we're grateful that we can do this, that we can come and sit before your word and and uh and and to consume it and to eat it and to be nourished by it to be shepherded by it and we pray for your grace upon us in this moment we pray for grace upon me as the preacher and and our church those who are listening that you would grant us ears to hear eyes to see that we would have hearts that are full uh, of life and uh, eager to to consume your word and to to be helped and shepherded by it. And so, Lord, we ask that you would shape us through this. And uh, we, we depend upon you. And uh, we don't want information transfer. We want life change. And we ask that that's what you would bring about uh, because of your word this morning. We deeply, deeply need you. And we ask for your spirit and your help and your anointing. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, I would be remiss if I didn't also say a word. I just want to uh, remember uh, a year of since our brother Gary died. Uh, he, he was a great man, a man that I loved very dearly, a man that impacted our church as a deacon. And uh, and today we mark one year. But men of God, men who walk with God like that are not easily forgotten. And Gary will be remembered and cherished in our hearts for a long, long time. And so we're praying for Patsy, for you, and, and for the family. We love you guys a great deal. Uh, the burden of this message this morning is really to drive the nail in, to bend the nail over, however you want to say, on this last week that we've just gone through with uh, prayer and fasting as a church. And this week, the focus was on personal renewal, family renewal. We're thinking about Repentance. We're thinking about what we need to do to draw closer to God. Areas that God would point his finger at in our life. Areas where we need to experience spiritual renewal. Now, all of us have those areas. I mean, for some of you, they're very prominent. They're very clear. And for others of you, it's more subtle. And you need to pray and discern and ask for the Holy Spirit to, to really point his finger at various places in your life to show you wherein there's real deficiency. But I want to talk about a subject that is very practical for uh, personal holiness and actually a subject that shapes really the life of a family, of a marriage, of, of a parenting situation, and really the life of a church. And if we don't get a hold of it, if we don't work on it, if we don't honor God through it, it'll bring great harm and destruction to our marriages, to our parenting, to the church. And so I want to address that topic with us this morning. Now, normally we preach expositionally that as we walk through portions of scripture, sort of phrase by phrase or paragraph by paragraph, and we teach what God's word has to say to us. So we we tend not to preach topically, which is we tend not to just sort of come up with clever topics to teach the church and to preach those things. We want God to generally set the agenda for what our learning is in the church. But because we're going through a special time of prayer and fasting, we're taking a couple of weeks to really drill down on a couple of topics. This morning, I want to talk about uh, our mouth and our speech because it's such an important part 
of our holiness. Jesus says, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. In other words, the way you speak is an indicator to you and honestly, really to everyone else around you as to how you're doing spiritually. I don't know if you think about that, but it's pretty easy to discern kind of generally the, 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 the spiritual temperature of a person by just listening to them talk perpetually. You know, do they ever reference Jesus? Do they seem to be hungry for God? Is their conversation generally spiritual or generally not spiritual? Is there harsh, a harshness about them? Is there an anger? Is there a criticism? Is there, or is there a gentleness and a humility and a, so you can learn a whole lot by just listening to somebody. And when you start thinking about the tongue in the Bible, actually, it's a really, really painful topic. It's painful because the Bible pulls no punches in how it talks to us about the tongue and our use of the words. What we see is that our tongues, according to scripture, are full of poison. They spew forth, as James says, all kinds of evil. Proverbs considers the way that we speak to be at the top of things that um, that Solomon actually is most concerned about in life. Or one of the things that affects us the most in life. In other words, how we speak will either, in some ways, make your life or break your life. The Proverbs 18.21 says it this way, life and death are in the power of the tongue. That's serious. If life and death are in the power of the tongue. So it's a matter, really, of life and death. Words are powerful. They're extremely powerful, in fact. They set the whole course, as James says, of one's life. And James makes it clear in James 3 by referring to the tongue as a bit in the mouth of a horse. Or he likens the tongue to a small rudder rudder that actually can turn a whole ship. Or he says it's like a spark that can set a whole forest on fire. Words are potent. They have the power to hurt and wound and destroy. Words are just little things, but they're bombs. They're just like bombs, and they can blow up and cause great, great damage. But they also have the power to do great things, marvelous things, very helpful things. They can define and explain and shape our existence in helpful ways. And so learning to speak wisely is an essential thing for the Christian. Now, the reason why this is so important for us to understand is because it's it's very tempting uh, for you and for t- me to minimize the importance of our words. And this is evident by how much we talk. Just think about this for a minute. We're a culture of talkers. So watch TV or go to the cafe somewhere and just listen to how much just talking we do. People love to air out their opinions about whatever. Just want to make clear their idea. People are so eager to talk that they actually talk over each other. We can't even wait for the guy to finish. We have to quickly insert something that we want to say and so we'll talk over them. We just talk and talk and talk and talk. As a culture and some people, as you know, have a unique problem with talking Uh, and, you know, and just they just go on and on and on and on. And it's like almost like vomit of the mouth. It just keeps coming out. And you're wondering, man, is this is there an off switch to your mouth? Does it ever stop? Or could you just listen to someone else for a while? But, you know, they just keep going and going and going. And I mean, and, and this is a problem in our culture now. We all know people like that. And maybe you're sitting there thinking this morning, well, I'm not really that guy. I tend to be quiet. 
And so therefore, I don't have a unique problem with my mouth in that way. Well, if you think that you're excused this morning, you're not, because the fact is everyone has a problem with words at some level. And here's why. Either you have a problem with the abundance of words, or maybe it's the misuse of words, or the impropriety of words, or the absence of words when they're necessary. There are people who say too much, and then there are people who don't say enough. And both kinds of people are listening right now. And so my prayers this morning is that, that we will take seriously the impact and the power that our words have, and that we would resolve afresh according to the, spa- the power of the Spirit and in the presence of God to get a hold of our tongues. So today I want to focus on the life giving power of the tongue. Now, it's very easy when you talk about a sermon on the tongue or the mouth to go in the negative direction, right? So let's just go after gossip and let's go after criticism and and let's just really make clear that those things are sinful and God does not like those things. And, And that's an important sermon. But this morning, I don't want to do that. This morning, what I want to do is I want to go after how do we build a culture of life around the tongue? I want to go after a positive construction for how God would use our mouths to actually shape the identity of our church and our marriages. And that's what I want to focus on, the life-giving power. Because God is eager for us to grow in this area. He's eager for us to grow in our marriages and our family and our church. And, and, I, and I want to look at two categories of words that bring life to us. Here they are, growth words and gospel words. Two things this morning, growth words and gospel words. Now, when I use the word growth words, what I have in mind here are words that build up, words that edify, words that are constructive, words that equip, words that enrich our walk with God. In short, words that help me grow as a Christian. And there are several categories of words that do that. So let me let me deal with those. First, we have words of truth, words of truth. Proverbs 12, 17 says, Whoever speaks the truth declares what is right. The truth is essential is that we cannot love one another unless we're speaking the truth. But as we speak the truth, we're helping one another. It's actually life giving. Proverbs 14, 25 says it this way. A truthful witness rescues lives. Have you ever seen a situation where what was needed at the moment to rescue a certain situation was just a word of truth? And the moment that a word of truth comes in, the issue is resolved and someone is rescued from a situation. So that healthy, life-giving speech is the kind of speech that involves truth-telling. I mean, that's a fundamental reality for us. Jesus was praying for his disciples. And in John 17, 17, he said, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. So the fuel for transformation is the truth. And we are to be speaking the living, abiding word of God over one another's lives until it actually begins to influence the way everything that we do. So the Bible, obviously, is the greatest book that has ever been written. And it's and that's true because it's the only book that God has written and preserved and protected and promoted. And it's infallibly true. And therefore, because of this word, it has great power to shape and transform our lives. Now, the question for us is very practically is, are we standing on the truth? And by standing on it, I, I don't mean do we acknowledge the truthfulness of God's word? 
Okay, that's a pretty low bar. It's pretty easy to acknowledge the truth of God's word. What I mean is, has, I mean, has it moved us from something we value to something that's actually changing us? Because I would say that we don't really respect the word of God until it actually begin, until we actually begin to implement its truth and we allow it to actually change us and transform us as people. So the question would be is how, how much respect do we have the, for the word of God? Do we have enough to actually let it influence us? To have it impact our lives? Because here's a fact is that strong families, strong marriages, strong churches feed, feed on the truth. So you want a family that fears the Lord? Then you have to speak truth to one another. Jesus says, Matthew seven twenty four. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and what? And acts on them will be like a sensible man who built his house on the rock. So there are two kinds of marriages and families. Those who build themselves on the truth and those who don't. I mean, it's really fundamentally that simple. Listen, God is aware of your relationship with his word. I mean, he knows what you're doing with it. He knows if you're, number one, picking it up. Number two, reading it carefully. Number three, digesting it and seeking to apply it. Or he also knows if you don't really listen to it, don't really read it, don't really act on it. He knows. And so let me ask you a a challenging question this morning is, do you love God? Do his desires matter to you? Are you committed to his truth in your marriage, in your family, in your relationships? And if you are, then remember this, especially for those of us who are parents, is that you only get so many words in this life to influence your family. So many words, so few words might be a better way to put it. And the older our kids get, the less time that we have to influence them with our words. And so the longer that we've been married, the harder it is for patterns of speech to be broken. I mean, isn't that true? In your marriage, in your home, you just develop patterns, right? So we get up at this time, we go through these things, that this is our dinner routine, this is how we put the kids to bed, or if your kids are no longer in the house, this is what we do with the remaining hours of our evening. And, and, and we have this routine. And over the years, those patterns get set. And so it's harder and harder and harder to break that, especially speech patterns in the home, words of criticism, words of anger, cutting words, making fun of each other, whatever it is, angry tones, angry speech, frustrated speech. And the longer that goes on and for the, 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 the many years that that goes on, the harder and harder it is to break that speech. And so my encouragement to you would be start now, start now, work on refining your speech. I, I remember a distinct occasion when I was, uh, uh, in seminary in Minneapolis. And I remember John, John Piper saying to us in class one time, and it, it, it just really, um, was, was kind of woe to me, like one of those moments. And he said to us in class, he's dead serious. He said, please, he said, I'm getting old. And he said, um, I don't want you to speak to me, please, about anything other than Christ, eternity, and things that actually have eternal value. Because I just, I'm getting old and I want to spend my days reflecting on Jesus. Now, that's not to say that John Piper doesn't like to talk about food or sports or something in the news or anything of that matter. Of course he does. But I'm saying in general, what he was saying to us is, guys, please, please, because life is so limited and so short. Please, please talk to me about Jesus and things that matter. And and I love that conviction. So those are words of truth. Here's the second category of growth words. 
Words that promote growth. Words of correction. This is a hard category. Proverbs 27, 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Charles Bridges makes this observation in his commentary on Proverbs. He says, The mark of true godliness is an eagerness. Think about this language. An eagerness to have our faults pointed out and a thankfulness to those who do it. Now, I don't know about you, but I typically don't have an eagerness for someone to call my sin out. Nor do I tend to have as a first response thankfulness that someone did. But is he right? He's right, isn't he? And and that's what we need. A true friend is willing to wound his other friend and help him. And we need the help of other people to see those areas about us that need to change. It's the guy who 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 walks around and, and what he doesn't realize is he's got toilet paper stuck to the bottom of his shoe. It's the person who 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 has cream cheese on his mustache and he has no idea until someone points it out and says, hey, you've got cream cheese on your mustache. And we need to have that pointed out to us. A friend who's not willing to wound you actually does not love you well. And if you're not willing to wound another friend, you don't love them well. See, all this exposes our idolatry. It exposes us, our, our, our idolatry to the things that we are living for instead of God. Think about it. I mean, if you're building your life on the approval of others, guess what? You won't speak truth to them because you want them to approve of you. And you're afraid that'll harm your, their esteem for you. Or if you're enslaved to what people think about you, you won't speak the truth. On the other hand, think about this. Here's the reciprocal side. If you can't wait to correct others, then you're self-righteous. And people who live to correct others, ironically, are typically not open to correction themselves. So test yourself this morning. Which is your tendency? To correct too much or to not correct enough? In our elders meeting um, some time ago, we went through a packet by Tim Keller and David Pallison, uh, which just reminded our fellow pastors of this week, a uh, questionnaire called a pastor's self-evaluation questionnaire. And it's 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 challenging. It's really, really challenging. Um, and, and, and I want to just share a little quote from it to, to serve you as well, because I think it applies not only to pastors, but to all of us. Listen to what. Keller and Pallison say here, I'm being corrected, says this, do you acknowledge your limitations and needs out of confidence in Christ's gracious power? Do you demonstrate a willingness to admit your mistakes, sins, and weaknesses? Are you defensive, guarded, hypersensitive? Now just kind of stop there for a minute. The, the question I think that's really challenging here is he's getting at is could it be that one of the reasons why people don't correct you? Like, let's say that you're sitting there you're now and you're saying, man, like nobody ever corrects me. Could it be that one of the reasons for that is that that you don't model an open Christian life? That you have set up walls around you. Basically, what you've done is you've said, I'm you're like, you're not allowed in here to discuss me. And I'm closing this area off from your conversation. You can talk, you know, about other things to me, but you can't talk about me to me. And certainly you can't talk about me to other people. I'm basically closed off, which is generally not a Christian approach. But that's what we do. Do you do do you demonstrate that the Christian life is a work in process or a completed product? See, because if you're closed, what you're basically saying to people is I'm kind of a completed project. 
You know, I'm kind of done. I, I kind of have it together. But if you demonstrate that life is a, a Christian life is a process, then you're totally good with saying, you know what? I, yeah, I'm really broken. I've got a lot of flaws. So thank you for pointing that out because I see that area of weakness and I want to grow in those areas because you know what? It's a process and I'm not a completed project. So Pallas and Keller go on to say about correcting others. Are you able to confront the failings of others to admonish people in a way that's not punitive? Okay. How about this word irritable or irritable, but breathes the invitations of God's grace. Do you contribute to the destructive to destructive conflict or to peacemaking? On the other hand, are you too tolerant? Are you naively optimistic about people? Do you massage people's egos with praise and unconditional positive regard? Or is your love limp? And truthless, do you whitewash or minimize problems rather than tackle them? Are you a peacemaker willing to enter into constructive conflict because of biblical love? Or are you a peace lover and conflict avoider? Isn't that great? Great, great x-ray questions, I would call them. that actually get to the real root of kind of who we are. So those are good questions to ask ourselves this week. If you want that list, I'm happy to send them to you if you want to do further examination on these points. One guy said that the difference between gossip and flattery is that gossip is something that you would never say to somebody's face, but you'll say when they turn their back. Flattery is something that you'll say to somebody's face that you would never say if they turn their back. Because you don't really believe that about them. You're just flattering them. I think it's a very good insight. I don't remember who said that. I read it this week. So those are words are also growth words. They correct us. But we also need words of encouragement. These are growth words, words of encouragement. Proverbs 20, sorry, Proverbs twelve twenty five says anxiety in a person's heart weighs him down. But encouraging, but an encouraging word brings him joy. Isn't that true? Just need sometimes we just need an encouraging word. Hebrews ten twenty four and says, let us consider let's think about how to stir, stir one another up towards love and good works. Well, all that sounds good, but what does it mean to stir, to stir one another up? Well, have you ever, have you ever been at a campsite and, and have you ever blown on a fire when the coals are really dim and they kind of light up? And, and you know, when you blow the embers off the coals, the, the, a new flame comes up, right? And so that's what we are meant to be doing for one another is getting down there and blowing on those coals, causing a new flame, fanning into flame the hunger of God in one another's hearts. And that's one of the purposes of the local church, that when we gather together on Sundays, we are trying to fan into flame one another's hunger for God. So our conversations are meant to be edifying and encouraging and uplifting. We are meant, that's our, that's our joy. That's our privilege to say, here's my brother. Here's my sister. I'm going to fan into flame their heart and hunger for God. That's my purpose this morning. And that's one of the great values of gospel community groups. We can get into those smaller pockets and we can really do that well. We can pray over each other and encourage them. Some of you may be wondering, you know, I've got to be honest as I sit here, I, I, I seem to be losing passion for God. I wonder why am I losing passion for God while other people, they seem to be racing ahead spiritually. Other people, they, you know, they seem to be doing well, but I'm just kind of going along and I'm not really getting anywhere spiritually. Well, let me tell you one reason why that's the case. 
Because it takes more than a Sunday Christian to thrive spiritually. You can't just show up on Sunday morning and expect that you're going to have a deep, penetrating walk with God. You will never be on fire for God if you isolate yourself and you avoid meaningful spiritual fellowship with members of the local church. I mean, casual Christianity is no recipe for a serious walk with God. You need to be around believers who are getting together, who are challenging and exhorting one another, because that type of fellowship will create an environment of worship that actually creates hunger and love for God. And that's what we need. So, friends, those are growth words. Now, here's a second category of words that that give life. Okay, they're gospel words, or I would call them gracious words. All right, so here's where we are this morning. We're trying to talk about how do we use our mouth to build a healthy, healing, redemptive context for our marriages and our church. And gospel words are the other type of words. They transform us. They give us hope. They motivate us and shape our identity. They heal our relationships. They foster worship. And the first of these words that I want to highlight this morning are what I would call loving words, words of love. All right. Paul gives us a pretty clear picture of this in first Corinthians 13, the, the love chapter affectionately known. And he says this, he says, love is patient. Love is kind. It is not envious. Love does not brag. It is not puffed up. It is not rude. It is not self-serving. It is not easily angered or resentful. It is not glad about injustice, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Amazing standard. Amazing standard. And, And one that we would do well to meditate on, ruminate on in our marriages And in our personal lives this week, isn't that great, that text? And and that should be a text that that we review with our wives and husbands weekly. I mean, take some time this week and pray through that list as a husband or a wife. As church members, we need to pray through that list. Imagine if our church was fundamentally characterized. I mean, fundamentally at the core characterized by those verses. And for some of us. Here's here's the irony. For some of us, loving speech is as simple as restraining our speech. Sometimes the most loving thing you can do is not talk. Proverbs 17, 28 says, Even a fool is considered wise when he keeps silent and discerning when he seals his lips. Some of us just need to seal it. Just keep your tongue in the mouth. Just restrain your words. Proverbs 17, 27 says, The intelligent person restrains his words. And one who keeps a cool head is a man of understanding. I heard it said today that that great minds talk about, talk about uh, rich content. They talk about um, uh, things that, that, that pertain to, to, to rich, richness in, in life. And the average minds talk about events and things that occurred. And simple minds talk about other people. And I think that's generally true. A simple-minded person loves to walk around and just talk about other people. A high-minded person loves to talk about and interact with truthful things. And that's another litmus test. So, an intelligent person restrains his words, Solomon says. Here's what that means. 
Just don't say it. Right? Just, just, just don't say it. It's gonna get you in trouble. You know that when, ah, oh, words are coming out, they're coming out, I shouldn't be doing this, but they're coming out, and once they get out, like you can't reel them back in, they're out. And when they get out, it always, always, always causes trouble. And it will eventually come back to you, it will eventually cause you trouble, it will eventually harm your reputation, and it will get you in trouble. Just don't do it. Proverbs 21, 23, the one who guards his mouth and tongue keeps himself out of trouble. Now think about how we hurt each other with our speech. A man comes home at the end of a, uh, end of a day. He's worked really hard. He's worked a, maybe a swing shift. Or he's worked a, just a difficult shift at work. He comes home at the end of the day. He's hungry and he's looking forward to a nice, warm, home cooked meal. Well, his wife has also had a busy day. He doesn't really know anything about it. She's exasperated. She's been pulling out her hair with her kids all day. You know, there's just stuff all over the floor. The kids have made a wreck of the house. Things are in bad shape. He comes home. She, The wife puts the food in the oven. She's trying to discipline her kids. Things are totally chaotic in the house. And he comes in, and the first thing he smells is something burned. It's burned. And in, in a sort of a snarky way, he approaches her and he says to her in a very mean-spirited, kind of but snarky and yet quiet and sarcastic way. He says, you know, I work really hard and I don't demand much, Like, but an edible meal would be nice once in a while. Now imagine that. Now is she going to say as a response to that, oh, I just feel so loved by this man. I feel so encouraged by him. I, I want to entrust my heart to him. Is that her response? No, of course not. But imagine another scenario. Imagine a different marriage. Imagine that a man comes home. He smells something burned. The wife is embarrassed as she sets the meal down for him to eat. And the man just gently puts his hand on her hand. And he says, hey, it's okay. You know, you serve us well, so well every day in ways that I'll never notice. If all I have to do is eat an overcooked meal once in a while, I have so much to be thankful for. And and I love you. And besides, I'm hungry, so let's eat. That's an entirely different situation. That's an entirely different scenario. Those are two radically different marriages, but they're both built, hear me, on words. On words. One is built on words of life. One is built on words of death. Now think about that. If that same scene plays out 20 different times a week, 50 different times in a month, those two marriages are going to be moving in radically different directions. Either one towards life and the other towards death. And years later, one marriage, trust me, hear me on this, one marriage will be dead for all intents and purposes and the other marriage will be thriving And couples sit down with pastors and they're so confused and counselors and they say, I don't know what went wrong. Like, like, I don't, it wasn't like there wasn't an affair. There wasn't like any uh, adultery. There wasn't any kind of abuse in the home. There wasn't any substance abuse. There was no major issue, but we hate each other and we don't know what went wrong. Yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. You know what went wrong. Listen, hear me. You've both been speaking words of death to one another for years. 
Of course your home is broken. So test yourself this morning. Consider the talk that goes on in your home. How much of it is impatient and and unkind? How often are words spoken out of selfishness and personal desire? How easy do outbursts of anger occur? How often do we bring up past wrongs? How often do we fail to communicate hope? How often do our words carry threats like, I've had it with this marriage? You know, for some of us, it's probably time for us to consider that we don't know the way of love like 1 Corinthians 13 paints for us. We say we do, but we don't live like it functionally. And if that's you, then, then, then my encouragement to you this morning is cry out for grace and swim in the waters of 1 Corinthians 13. Here's a plan. Meditate on 1 Corinthians 13 until it begins to change you as a person. You know, World Harvest Mission uh, has a tongue test. And I hope you'll try it. I, I, I did it with Tina and I'm telling you, it's brutal. It's really, really hard. And it will expose your need for more Christ-exalting speech in the home. And which is a great thing. And the test says this. It says to try it for a week. So let me give it to you, okay? And if you guys are daring enough, uh, take it, okay? But I'm telling you, it's hard. Here's the way it works, okay? For a week, there's a group of thing, things to not do and things to do. Ready? Here it is. It'll be up on the screen. Don't gossip, Don't gossip. Don't complain about anything. Don't blame shift. Don't defend yourself. Don't boast about anything at all for any reason. Don't criticize even if criticism is warranted. Okay? Don't do those things, all right? Uh, Now, here's the do things. Do, Do this. Go out of your way to say good things about other people. Repeatedly encourage those around you. Find a way to talk about your weaknesses, not your strengths, to others, and immediately admit it when you've done something wrong. All right? So, do that. Take that. uh, Try that for a couple of days and see how that goes. And set a start and a finish time so that you'll remain conscious that you're sort of being tested. And just see how that works. Now, it's funny because, uh, as I told you, I tried this in in our house. And, uh, and I took this test with Tina and I can remember, I remember one night saying to Tina, uh, I said something critical about a person or a situation to Tina and she called me out on it. And she said, she said, that's critical speech. And so immediately I was thinking, well, I mean, I wanted to justify why I said it. So I said, well, I mean, here's the reason why I said what I said. And she said, that's defensive speech. And so I, you know, so she said in, in a play, in a playful, I said in a playful way, I said, well, well, honey, you brought it up. And she said, now you're blame shifting. And I said, well, your speech isn't exactly edifying. And she said, she said, now you're using accusatory speech. So laughing in, in utter defeat, I just said, I quit. I, I'm out. I'm going to bed. And Tina, Tina gave me this tip. She said, hun, you'll do a lot better if you just don't speak during this test. Look, I mean, the reality is, I don't know if that's more of, an, uh, of a litmus test of how hard the test is. Or how difficult it is for me to live with a psychiatrist. I mean, think about it. I live in a house with a psychiatrist. So if you guys feel compassion or, or burden for me, I, I'll accept Starbucks gift cards, cinnamon rolls. I would love a care package. Because it is really hard to live with a woman who's not only that intelligent, but a psychiatrist. But seriously, the, the test is hard. And it reveals so much sin uh, in our hearts and mouths. So do, do that. Take that test this week. 
and uh, and see how you do on that. And let's pray for for new patterns and habits in our speech. Well, that leads me to another gracious word that we need, and that is not words of love. The second thing is words of forgiveness. Words of forgiveness. And this is really hard for a lot of people, especially people that have entrenched patterns of difficult relationships. It's very hard to forgive. For some of you, you know, like forgiveness is like almost the hardest thing on the earth for you to consider for certain people. Proverbs 19.11 says, though, a person's wisdom makes him slow to anger and it's his glory to what? To overlook an offense. It's his glory to do so. Jesus says, forgive and you will be forgiven. Jesus didn't talk about forgiveness. Jesus did it. He did it. From tax collectors to self-righteous Pharisees, Jesus forgave. He even forgave a man in his last hour. Jesus is all about forgiveness. Here's a question. As a professing follower of Jesus, are you, are you all about forgiveness? I mean, all of us have been hurt and offended by other people. But whether that came from a friend or a family member or someone in the church, the fallout of unforgiveness is serious. It's the cause of so much anger and hostility and separation and divorce and pain and agony and hurt in life. And that's why Paul Tripp says that there's no call of Christ more difficult than the call to forgive others. It's hard. And some of you are are really struggling with that right now. But listen to me. Unforgiveness is cancer to your relationships. Are you willing to pursue reconciliation? Are you willing to ask that person to forgive you? Are you willing to grant forgiveness to that person? You better be, because James 2.13 says, Judgment is without mercy to those who show no mercy. That is serious. That's a hard word. And a person who goes on refusing to forgive ultimately reveals that they have never understood or possibly even received the eternal forgiveness that God offers in Jesus Christ. Think about that. On the other hand, people that forgive are people who understand the gospel. They have a rich understanding of God's mercy. And it's beautiful because when we forgive each other, what we're doing is we're elevating the example of Christ. So Ephesians 4.32, the text that we read this morning says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And that's how we're to forgive one another. How? How do we do that? Just like Jesus. Just as fast. Just as free. Just as fully as Jesus forgave us. That's how. Just like Jesus. So church family, let's speak words of forgiveness to each other. Because those are words that heal. Well, that leads me to the final word, gospel or gracious word for us this morning that I want to highlight. And it's this. Redemptive words. Redemptive words. Proverbs 16, 24 says, Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. Gracious words are redemptive words. They steer others toward life. Proverbs 25, 15 says, it's a really great verse, a gentle tongue can break a bone. That's that's amazing. Isn't that interesting? A gentle tongue can break a bone. Think about how a, how it maybe as a metaphor, how a stone is worn away through the drip of soft water over and over. Something so hard as a stone shaped by something so soft as water. And likewise, the, the hard heart of a man or a child is shaped by grace. 
consider the power of gracious words. Imagine a scenario where you've got a father and a son and maybe a toddler and, 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 and the dad approaches his disobedient son who's being rebellious at a time during the day and he says, son, he says to him, son, I, I noticed that you're having a hard time obeying daddy. And it seems like something is going on in your heart. But you know what? I can understand that because dad has a hard time obeying God sometimes. So how can I help you? That's a gracious word. That's a word that understands the gospel. Or imagine another marriage situation. Imagine a wife comes to her husband and she says, honey, can you take out the trash, please? And he's laying on the sofa. Maybe he's had a hard day at work and, you know, he's sprawled out and he's watching the game. He says, yeah, 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 I'll take it out. About 10 minutes go, goes by and she comes to him a second time. She says, hey, hon, can you take out that trash, please? Yeah, yeah, I'll get to I'll get to it in a minute. And he just continues to lay on the sofa. Another 15, 20 minutes passes by and she says to him a third time, uh, hun, please, I need you to take out that trash. And he just sort of just gets up off the couch. He walks over and kind of begrudgingly just grabs the trash out of the thing and pulls it out. And he's kind of fuming and he's self-righteous because he's thinking she's just nagging me and nagging me. And he's thinking he's, you know, he's he deserves, you know, a break. And he's going on with this sort of mental anguish about how he's deserving of laying there. And she's a nagging wife and all this stuff. Now, imagine another scenario. Imagine another marriage. Another situation is a man is laying on the couch. His wife comes to him and says, hey, hun, could you take out the trash? And he just lays there. Yeah, yeah, I'll get it in a few minutes. She comes to him a second time. Hun, can you take out the trash? Yeah, yeah, I said I'll get to it in a minute. Third time. Hey, honey, I really need you to take out the trash. Can you please take it out? Yes, I'll take it out. Just give me a second. He just lays there, continues to watch his game. About five minutes later, she just sweetly goes, grabs the bag, takes it outside, throws it in the trash. Then she comes back down and lays down on the couch and cuddles with him. Never says a word. He doesn't even know she took out the trash. Ten minutes later, he's done with his drink. He goes to throw it in the trash, and it's empty. Proverbs twenty five fifteen. That breaks a bone. That breaks a bone. Because that man realizes... My dear, sweet wife didn't even say a word. She just took out the trash and laid down beside me like I had done her no wrong. When actually, in fact, I've really wronged her. That breaks a bone. That's a gracious word. Look, I know it's hard to do. I know for some of you, you know, this feels impossible, especially if you live with a husband or wife who seemingly never changes. Maybe they're not walking with God. Maybe they're not a Christian. Maybe you're in a marriage situation where your spouse does not know Jesus. And you, you're thinking as a wife, you know, my husband is just, he's so hard. His heart is so hard. Nothing changes. But hear me. Your soft word, your loving word, your forgiving word may just break his heart. Listen, listen to me. No shouts. No pointed fingers. No red-faced accusations, no bulging forehead veins, no derogatory names, no inflammatory speech, vocabulary, no scary threats, no arrows of guilt, no list of crimes, no hope of trying to do God's work. But instead, instead speaking calmly, speaking simply, speaking spiritually, 
speaking graciously, letting God do what only God can do. Crack the hard shell heart of a wayward man. And make it feel again. See again. Cry again. Pray again. Hope again. This is the harvest of a person of grace. Giving grace to a man who doesn't deserve it. But won't live again without it. Those are the words of Paul Tripp in his book. Whiter than snow. Those are redemptive words friends. Gracious words. And they bring healing in life. And we need to speak them to one another. But we don't just need gracious words. We need words about grace. We need words about the gospel. We need to be reminded of the gospel over and over again. And that's why Ephesians says speak the truth in love. Which doesn't just sort of win. Whenever we think about that verse. We think speak the truth in love is about correction. But actually it's not limited to that. Speaking the truth in love. It actually literally says truthing one another in love. The idea is ongoing pattern of speech, words of grace, words about grace. So there they are, words of grace, words of forgiveness, words of love. These are gospel words. And then we have growth words, words of encouragement, words of correction, words of truth. Those are growth words. And we need both gospel words and growth words. So how do we grow, church, in these areas? Well, let me close by giving us some practical steps to pursue. And I wrote down four ways to do that. Before I say that, I just want to say if you're here today as a non-Christian and you're here, you're listening to a family sermon, a, a, a family talking point about what it means to walk with Jesus closely. My burden for you is actually that you would have a relationship with Jesus. So you can't really, you shouldn't be worried about cleaning up all your speech first. You should be worried about taking your broken, needy heart to Jesus. Give him your heart. He will help you clean up your speech. So please do not process this sermon as, oh, I want to, I got a pep talk this morning on how to talk better. No, what you need to receive this morning is a pep talk on how to run to Jesus and lay down at the foot of the cross and give him your heart and your soul. He'll take care of your speech later. So I warmly invite you to pursue Jesus. You just need to repent of your sin and you need to acknowledge that you are undone and desperate and that you are an enemy of God unless he forgives you of your sin you will endure the just fury and wrath of God but through his love and through the crushing of his son you have new life in Jesus if you will repent and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ I invite you to do that this morning with the rest of us and that's why we have hope so let me give you four ways to pursue change in our speech this morning by the power of the Holy Spirit on the foundation of the gospel okay So we're talking about spirit uh, inspired, okay, gospel empowered, uh, spirit faith fueled, gospel driven, spirit empowered effort. Okay, those are important qualifications there. Okay, faith fueled, gospel driven, spirit empowered effort to changing our mouth. Four things. Number one, acknowledge your sin. Paul says in Philippians 3.13, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it. That's humility. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead. So acknowledge the past and move on. It's so easy to get swallowed up by remorse or by fatalistic thinking. I'll never change. I'll always be the same. 
Look at all the years that I've lost to my marriage and parenting. It's all over. I'll never fix it now. And I'm sure you have lost years in your marriage. But listen to me. God is able to set you on a life-changing course because you're in Christ. So acknowledge your past and move forward. Number two, hope in God. Hope in God. We would never say this, but functionally we live like our sin is bigger than God. You know, you know, you, you, you say something like, I think I'm always going to struggle with this. This same sin, I'll never defeat it. Why? The truth is God is bigger than your sin problem. God is bigger than your struggle. Sin is not your master anymore. And victory over sin is certain in Jesus The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus guarantee your victory over sin. Paul said, for sin will have no mastery over you because you're not under the law, but under grace. So friends, take fresh hope this morning. Number three, recognize your sin. Do you even see it? Like, are you even aware of your sin? Some of you, that's the place to start. Just recognize the problem. Are you aware of specific patterns of sin in your speech? Do you see what others see? Do you see the the cream cheese, as I said earlier, on your mustache? Get some help. Ask some friends to point it out to you. And then number four, don't make excuses. Just, Just don't do it. Just don't make justifications for why you're saying or doing what you're doing. Paul Tripp says again, he says, People and situations do not cause us to speak the way we do. Our hearts control our words as jesus said out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks people and situations simply provide the occasion for the heart to express itself that's why i was saying earlier when you run around and you say lots of destructive hurtful things about people critical talk gossip whatever people know you're generally not doing well spiritually so actually it's more of a testimony you're just kind of screaming out to the world i'm an unwell christian i'm not doing well and, and, and so we need other people to show us that so that we can change and garner more respect for the way that we live our Christian life. So don't make excuses. Take responsibility. Repent. And if you know that you're a gossip, if you know that you're a critical person, my question is, why aren't you repenting of that? We have to replace old habits with new ways. You say, well, I'm sorry, you know, I shouldn't talk that way. You say, you know, I should stop saying things like that. But Jesus says to you, then start talking a new way. Just be a different person by the power of of grace. So let's start that. And that means that gossip and criticism and hurtful speech will will not characterize our church either. As long as we have hope in the gospel, that will not be characteristic of a church that loves God. We have the power of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ at work in us. So here's what I want to challenge us with, okay, as a church. We're talking about building a healthy, redemptive context with our speech. Here's what I want to challenge us with. Hear me on this. Let's create a culture around here, okay, listen, where gossip and criticism is just weird. I mean, it's weird. It's so awkward. Like, it's so weird so that if you're involved with it, you feel really, really, really uncomfortable. Proverbs 26, 20 says, where there is no wood, the fire goes out. And where there's no whisperer, arguments cease. Here's my challenge. Just don't provide any wood for the fire. Just don't do it. How do you stop it? How do you stop it? You stop it by being really, really bold with people and saying, don't talk to me about that. Okay, that sounds really, really rough on the front end, but I'm telling you, it'll bring healing and life. 
to us as a church. Let's work really hard to establish a culture where gossip, hear me, is simply not tolerated at the church. It's just not tolerated. It's just not. We, we wouldn't tolerate sexual abuse. But why should we tolerate gossip? It's the same thing. It is not allowed. It's not tolerated. It's not accepted. To help us with that, here's some wise counsel from Dan Phillips. This is, man, this is really, really challenging stuff. Listen to this. So for the next time that you hear gossip from someone, let me encourage us to follow Dan Phillips' advice and say this to them. Let's incorporate this into our vocabulary at Heritage. Okay, write this down. Write these down. Six things. Next time you hear what you think is a word of gossip, try this. Ready? Here we go. Number one, why are you telling me this? Why are you telling me this? Number two, what's the difference between what you're telling me and gossip? What's the difference between what you're telling me and gossip? Number three, how is your telling me that criticism or information going to help you and me love God, our brothers better, and knit us closer together as a church in Christ's love? How is that helpful? In other words, that's the question of edification. Are, is this really helping us as a church? Is this helping us love one another? Number four, have you spoken to the person you're talking to me about? By the way, here, here's just a little insight. I was talking to Pastor Mark about this this week. And I think uh, we were just chatting up in the hallway. And, 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 and it's just this. People sometimes think that they can share hurtful, critical words to pastors because pastors are caring for people's souls. But I just want you to know that if you want to gossip or seek to subtly harm someone's reputation in the church under the disguise, quote, of spiritual care for someone else, then I'm not open for business. As a pastor, I'm just not open for business. I don't want to hear a harsh word about someone else in the church under the guise often of, hey, I'm here to help, you know, this other person grow spiritually. I, I just don't want to hear that. And number five, question from Dan Phillips. This is a good one. Now that you've told me, what are you going to do about this matter? Here's a tip. If someone says to you, you know, well, I'm, I don't know. I'm just going to pray. Okay. Maybe a good response would be, then why didn't you just do that to begin with instead of talking to me? And then number six, I think this is the most penetrating one of all of them, is this. Say to the person who's gossiping to you, now that you've told me about this, you have morally obligated me to make sure that you talk to so-and-so about it. So how long do you need before speaking to them so that I can know when this be- becomes a sin that I'll need to confront in you? In other words, if you're unwilling to talk to the person, you're living in sin, and I'm going to come back and I'm going to confront you for that. All right, that is, that, that's like really hardcore. Okay, and I, and I love it. And here's the reason why I love it. Because what it does, it absolutely stops a culture of gossip. And, I, and I'm just praying over our church, okay? We're going off a week of prayer and fasting. We're talking about personal renewal and repentance. And I'm just saying, folks, let's implement that kind of vocabulary where it's just weird. I mean, weird to engage in that. And then God will help us. And what we'll do is we'll protect our church. We'll honor Jesus. All right, so let me close. Let's foster a spirit of grace and forgiveness and reconciliation and love, a spirit of humility and kindness and hope that sees past deficiencies and difficulties and rejoices in the deep bonds of true friendship in Christ. After all, we are members of one another and God forgave our unloving speech. So let's give each other grace. 
All right. All in favor of that? Giving one another grace. All right. Let me invite the worship team to come up uh, as we finish. Okay. And in conclusion, I want to remind us that we have the ability to transform our speech. And that ability emerges from our relationship with Christ. In Christ, we find hope. Through him, we can change. So we can put aside old ways. So hear hear me on this last thing here. Okay. This morning's message is not a pep talk on, on speech. It's not wishful thinking. Okay, it's rather a confident expectation that in Christ we will win this battle in our marriages and in our church. That we no longer have to settle for bitter, angry, destructive speech. Christ is at work in us. He has the power to break old patterns of speech and replace them with new habits. And very practically, that means as a wife, you should relinquish the fear that your marital communication will never improve. As a husband, refuse the lie that angry words will always characterize you. It doesn't have to be as a parent. Anchor your hope in the God who will give you power to speak words of grace to your children, even in the midst of total exasperation. Don't you see that as Christians, it's a denial of the gospel to look at your spouse, to look at your fellow church member and say, why bother? They won't change. That's a denial of the gospel. Or to look at your parenting and conclude, these unrestrained emotions of mine, I hate them, but they're this lashing out and this yelling at my kids, it's always going to shape my parenting. No, it won't. No, it won't. It won't, because you have the power of God at work in you. The gospel is at work in you. It's not always going to characterize your marriage. And so, church, let's stand on the promise that Jesus came to change us from the inside out, that through Jesus, our whole world of talk has been redeemed. And that means if you're in Christ, you have a regenerated tongue. Think about that. What a thought. Jesus has already transformed your mouth from an instrument of death to an instrument of life. Jesus died for your tongue. To set it free. It's no longer a slave to sin. Okay? It's tamed. It's tamed in a way that no man can tame, as James says. And with that power and by the grace of God, let's take those new those tamed tongues, and let's start using them to bring life, joy, grace, healing to our marriages and to our church. And for God's glory and for the good of his people. So let's pursue that trajectory by God's grace. Let's pray. Father, that's what we want. And we recognize how hard, how hard, hard, hard this is. But yet with the spirit of God, we are endued with power. On, from on high, and we pray for that power to be at work deeply in our lives to change us, change our parenting, our marriage, change our church, change our families. Lord, just use our mouth to bring life and healing and joy and restoration to those around us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.